I'm Jessie from A Polar Night. I'm Heather from Tangled Beat Crafts. <laughs> and together we are the Crafty Gorgons. <laughs> no, we're the not so crafty Gorgons. <laughs> we're exhausted. It's been a brutal fucking week for both of us. So we're a little bit off. Um, but today we're going to be talking about memorial crafting. And this episode was essentially curated and cultivated by Jessie herself. Yeah, so I think this is like the second episode that I'm kind of sort of taking the reins on it a little bit. Um, So this is specifically, I just want to kind of touch on grief actually a little bit first. There are different types of grief and we are specifically talking about memorial crafts in terms of coping with grief from death. There's other things that would come into play, um, you know, when families split up or any other kinds of trauma you can think of that would cause grief. Specifically, we're just talking about death and that kind of loss. I think that's important to note because um, you may, you know, if you're having a different experience in your life, you may find some of this information still relevant, but just kind of know that's our bent on it today. Yeah, because I think everybody experiences death at some point. That's what life is. Um, but like you said, there's grief related to loss of job, loss of partner, loss of where death isn't necessarily involved, but you're still dealing with loss. Um, so kind of what I wanted to touch on was just that like, you know, memorial and ritual are intrinsic parts of like the human experience. So like Heather was saying, we all experience, um, loss through death. Like there's that saying that's something along the lines of like the price of love is loss. Um, And I think that that's really relatable. Like, you can't really have the full breadth of a full life without also experiencing loss of some kind and experiencing death. Because when you love people, obviously none of us live forever. And it's something we will all encounter at one point or another. Um, So we all deal with that differently. Um, I know that, like, I personally have had a lot of childhood trauma. For me, dealing with anything difficult, I have a delay between when something happens and when I feel it. And other people need to process things right away. Some of us have a delay. Some of us have different coping mechanisms. Some of us have unhealthy things that we've learned. Some of us have, um, you know, there's just all these different ways of dealing with loss and grief. Um, And for those that are crafty, I think it's like a natural instinct for us to want to delve into our hobbies and to delve into this thing that we either find as a distraction or it's peaceful. And there could be all these different reasons why, but I know for me personally, it's a matter of it's just my go-to. It's my instinct. It's a part of my personality to want to create something when I have that sense of a void in my life. Yeah, and I think it's important to know, so... Anthropologically speaking, as far back as 60,000 BCE, so before the Common Era, humanoids have buried their dead with some apparent intention and ritual. This does include some evidence of Neanderthals burying flowers with their dead. Now, as we know, with cultures evolving and our awareness of germs and disease increasing, the relationship with the dead has become a lot less intimate. Um, And this was something that we were just talking about before we were recording. Um, But there are some movements to change this relationship with death and our dead, with one of the most prominent figures being our girl, Caitlin Doughty of the Order of the Good Death. Um, For those of you who don't know, I'm really 
huge fan of um, Miss Doty's work, um, and she gets mentioned in a lot of other podcasts that I follow. Uh, but according to the Order of the Good Death, the order is about making death a part of your life. That means committing to staring down your death fears, whether it be your own death, the death of those you love, the pain of dying, the afterlife, or lack thereof, grief, corpses, bodily decomposition, or all of the above. Accepting that death itself is natural, but the death anxiety and terror of modern culture are not. Uh, their website has tons of resources on this topic, and we will be including links in the show notes. But part of why I wanted to talk about the Order of the Good Death is specifically because I think that crafting, like Jesse was talking about, is a way that we achieve that good death. It helps us forge that relationship with death in a more healthy capacity. And I definitely think that's a really interesting idea that, you know, our disconnect from death is um, cultural. There are cultures where death is much more hands-on and it's much more of a part of your human experience. Um, In my family, I think we were actually just talking about this, you know, it's not uncommon for us to uh, do things like, you know, Uh, In my family, we typically do, like, open casket things. We are dressing and cleaning the bodies of our loved ones ourselves. Um, And that's not uncommon, like, where we lived in Barrow. You know, that's a part of the whole experience is that you are there for your loved one in their final moments. I've also worked as a CNA and done a little bit of that in that piece of work as well, where I was oftentimes the person who was present to do that. Uh, So it's interesting that there's places that that's not typical, Um, There's also places in the U.S. where it's still pretty common, um, especially in rural areas, to have, like, home funerals. And uh, so I just think that's there's a whole, even just within our, what is our culture, technically, there's just this wide range of uh, contact and experiences in terms of contact and familiarity and comfort with death. Well, and it's super funny because so many people get grossed out by dead bodies, Um, you know, and it's an interesting reaction to have um or then there's the other side of it where it's that fear reaction of their own mortality being triggered right and so um i do think that part of our disconnect with death and the weird misperceptions about it have created a much more complicated grief um reaction and a lack of resolution Uh, To give our listeners some background, during my MSW practicum, I helped develop a grief and loss group for the agency I was serving in, and we were seeing, part part of why we decided to go with this group was because we were seeing a significant impact with all of the deaths by suicide happening in the community, Um, and these were triggering additional deaths um, as a result of mismanaged grief. And that compounds grief even further for those families and for those communities. And it's important that we acknowledge grief and we give it that space and we don't rush people through that process. Because, you know, hearkening back to capitalism in that episode, there is a pressure from at least Western society to push through and keep going and move forward without actually having processed through the grief. Yeah, I think that's especially interesting. You know, again, we're going to call back to that capitalism episode a little bit. Uh, Looking at, like, laws in the U.S. in terms of what is considered a close enough connection to be allowed to take 
leave from work and to have that, you know, be a protected job status um, is a really interesting thing for me as someone who has a wide um, extended family and I have, you know, step parents and step grandparents and things who technically under the law, some of my family members wouldn't actually like if they passed away, I wouldn't, my job wouldn't be protected if I took time off to grieve. Uh, and I just find that to be interesting that we put different values on different clo- different kinds of grief, I guess, in terms of what we consider to be a close family member or what that value of that relationship is. And that seems interesting to me that there's a value on that. Like you can put a different valuation based on prox- proximity instead of emotions. Well, and especially given that it's titular, you know, like it's about the title of that person and their connection with you. It's not about the actual depth of that relationship. Exactly. So, but basically what we want to make sure we cover is grief is essentially the emotional response to loss. There is no right or wrong way to grieve unless it involves hurting yourself or others. Uh, There are some cultures now that practicing piercing, tattoos, and other ritual body mutilation as a form of grief and expressing that grief um, is normal. And so we're not talking about that when we're saying that there's unhealthy ways to grieve. Uh, We are specifically referring to self-harm. Now, there's no limit to an appropriate time to grieve. Some cultures or societies do have standards in their etiquette, such as the one-year mourning period for widows in which they're expected to wear black and expected to act a certain way and attend so many churches and sit in certain places at the dinner table, you know, very Victorian, whatever. Uh, But honestly, those... um, those can't dictate how long you need as an individual to grieve, especially since those societal expectations can't capture the full depth of those relationships and the impact of that loss. You know, I've lost family members who I wasn't close to, didn't know very well, didn't see them very often, if at all. Um, And so my grieving period was very short, whereas grieving over someone else who I wasn't blood related to but lost um, and was very close to, the grieving time for that was a lot longer. I think it's also interesting to, um, sometimes it's just unexpected. I think that's another thing. Like the timeline isn't always what you'd expect it to be and the response is rarely what I think you expect it to be. You know, I've had it where Again, I have that delayed response, but I've also had it where, like, someone who was, like, my age, who I kind of knew on the fringes of my life, I've had some of those deaths hit me as hard as if it was someone who was my best friend, and I did not expect that to hurt that way. Um, I've also had it where I've had a very close family member, and during the time that I actually had off of work, I felt fine, and then I went back to work, and it was like the normalcy of my life hit me, and it almost made it worse, and then, like, I had the thing where... And everyone I, I, that I've talked to, I think, has experienced this to some degree where you'll be like, I don't know, walking in a store or something and a smell happens or you yeah. see something on the shelf or some something reminds you of that person and you are a wreck again as if they had just left you. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, that I want to talk about is that I think people get stuck in this idea of the five stages of grief where it's like, okay, well, I've been angry, so now it's time to move on to the the bargaining phase or whatever. And that's not how that actually works. The thing is, is grief is complex. These developmental stages or progressive stages, they may be accurate to someone's experience of grief, but the thing is, is you can shift between the phases and go back and forth, right? 
it's not something that happens in a chronological order for one and for two you don't necessarily experience all five stages of the grief some people never go into the bargaining stage some people never go into the anger stage you know the con the the context of the death the context of the loss influences that uh, the other thing that I want to talk about a little bit is the grief box analogy. Uh, so this is something that I talk about, especially with children um, or teenagers who are struggling with, well, why do I keep feeling sad? Why does it keep coming up? Why doesn't it just go away? And the thing is, is, you know, I want you, and I think um, Brene Brown actually covered this, but if you think about grief as a box, right? And um, it's this giant ball when it first happens. So when the loss first happens, it's this giant ball of feelings. And every time the button at the top of the box gets hit, you end up feeling the surge of grief. And over time, that ball of grief gets smaller. And as it gets smaller, it hits that button, triggering your reaction less often, but it still triggers it, which is why, you know, six years from a death, you could suddenly feel the grief and the loss and miss that person profoundly. But that grief ball doesn't ever go away. It's still bouncing in the box of your emotions. It's just hitting the button less often. Uh, but it's important to know that grief doesn't stop. It just gets less frequent. And then my reasoning for this episode and why I wanted to kind of go into it was that I work with a lot of people, again, who struggle with grief and loss, and I think that it gets minimized the value, the importance of processing through grief gets minimized and undervalued just in our very capitalistic society. It's going to seem like I'm constantly berating capitalism, which I am. I mean, we do have to live in this system, so we're kind of constantly aware of it. All the time. <laughs> All the time. But... Yeah, I just, I really want to make sure that people understand that their grief is healthy. It is okay to feel their feelings. And my goal with this episode is to help connect people with crafting as a way to healthfully process through that grief. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, like, touched on it a little bit, but I come from a background with a very blended family. My mother was married. My biological mother, let me clarify. I have... Oh, hitting things um and cats are hitting things yeah and dogs <laughs> and my dog is like trying to snuggle up to heather right now it's, there's there's a zoo happening over here um <laughs> but i have a really mixed family so my biological mother and i'm going to clarify that because i have an adoptive mother who i met when i was 19 and she is who i call mom so when i say mother i mean biological um she was married like eight times uh like four of which were after i was born i think I don't know. I can't keep track. She was married too many times. Um, but she was a classic narcissist, abusive, neglectful, could act normal for the first couple of years of, re of a relationship and then kind of go in actually totally go off the rails. So I was fortunate enough that the people that she chose to have in her life were really good people. Terrible for them because they had to deal with my mother. But fantastic for me because I got to have safe adults around, basically. And my stepfather... Um, who is my little brother's dad, was one of those people. And um, through him, I, I've, I actually have, um, have had six grandparents. The only one who is still living is my bio biological father's mother. But my stepdad's mother um, passed away a couple years ago. 
And when she passed away, she had a whole closet of these skirts. And she had, I think, just bought them and either never worn them or they just, you know, she didn't wear them very frequently. But they were fabrics that she loved. You know, she saw them, I think, probably thrifting or something. And she really liked these skirts. And the idea that she handled these fabrics and she picked them is pretty special. There's one that I wear periodically. Uh, The other ones I've had in a box because I have been kind of exploring options for what to do with them. And that was kind of where I came into this episode was in researching things that I could do fabric-wise with um, different clothing items. And I know that's something a lot of people think about. I didn't want to outsource. I know you can pay people to do things, and I'm not really capable of making a stuffed animal. I mean, frankly, I, I probably could. I just, I right now, I also don't have the spoons for that. Uh, so I looked into some things. So, like, Joanne's actually, if you are interested in making a stuffed animal, Joanne's has some really cool free stuffed animal patterns that are definitely worth checking out. They look pretty easy for a beginner sewist. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, there's a cute whale one that I found that I downloaded, which I almost did that. Um, the people that I want to make some things for, so she has, how many grandchildren? I think there's like six, maybe seven with me and my sister. I'm trying to remember. But my dad had three other kids um, before, you know, we came to the picture. And my brother Jake's wife, uh, she is amazing and she was really close with Bobshi. Bobshi taught her how to make pierogies and stuff. So she was very close with her and she loves plants. So I think I'm going to make her a shadow box um, plant. And then I was talking to dad and I was like, hey dad, like just so you know, I am making you guys something with these skirts. So what would be best for you? Do you want something to go on the wall? So I think he's also going to get some sort of a shadow box, something or other. For the children, um, she has two great grandchildren, um, my niece and nephew. And I think I'm going to make them little like mini pillows that can kind of just be put away until they're older and they can kind of, you know, use those better. So those were some of the options that I had found. But I'm intrigued by the idea of, you know, I'm a wire wrapper. So making a plant with the leaves being reinforced fabric. Oh. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. And I'd never seen anything like that. And there's a few pretty cool examples out there on Pinterest. Very cool. That's interesting. So, yeah, I just want to make something. I think when you're thinking about memorial pieces, the things that come up for me is like, okay, how is this going to look in someone's home? Will they want, like, where where will they want to display it? How can they keep it clean? Can they keep it clean? Yeah. Um, the durability and making sure that it's, because it's for memorial, you want it to be something that's going to stay together and last, I think. Yep. Because, yeah, if that piece falls apart down the road, that's going to be another type of loss compounding that original loss. Yeah, and that's why, like, you know, I make jewelry. Uh, I'm pretty good about repairing pieces that I've made anyways. If it's a memorial piece, um, people can basically send those to me forever and I will always fix them. I'm not ever going to compound someone's grief for money. That I just can't bring myself to ever do that. That's me. Please don't hear this and take advantage of me if you ever buy something from me. But <laughs> um, but I just can't bring myself to, like, put someone through that. So I think you worded that really well. That's exactly why I don't do that. Yeah. it, And I, I think it's important to know, too, that when you're doing these types of memorial crafts, that there may be some reactions from other people that you don't want or don't expect. So, for example... I have a friend who recently lost her father and she is currently 
in a bit of a conflict with her siblings over some of his shirts because she's wanting to repurpose them for a quilt. They're not wanting to do that. They're wanting to pass it down to other siblings or whatever. There's just some weird stuff with the shirts. Um, And she wasn't expecting that reaction to it. And so I think it's very important that whenever possible, when it's, you know, a grandparent who you know is going to be passing or somebody who you know is kind of getting close, that you guys are having those conversations with that person and then also with those siblings or anybody else who may have stake in the material going into the memorial craft. Um, So for example, I was gifted, you know, and I say that with air quotes, but I was gifted uh, my great grandmother's uh, crocheted blanket that she partially finished. And our plan right now, my sister and I, is for me to crochet the majority of the blanket to finish it with her doing the final border and single crochet because she's not an experienced crocheter and then gift that to my dad. But the thing is, is before I even bought any of the material, before I moved forward with it, I had a conversation with her, with my great, with my grandma, uh, which is my dad's mom. And we talked about this. So it was like, everybody's on the same page. Nobody's going to be upset that I'm the one finishing this. I'm the one completing it and that we're gifting it together. So I, I do think it's important to know grief manifests differently for everybody. And what you may think is a good grief memorial craft is not going to be perceived that way by everybody. I love that you brought that up actually. So not super, it's tangentially related. I, my grandmother drew in high school. Um, she actually did all of the inside cover art for her high school yearbooks. And so she had a copy of her yearbook and I got some pictures of the inside cover and I have that artwork. Um, and I made her an embroidery piece with some of this artwork and I sent it to her thinking not really thinking you know she's like 96 she doesn't apparently she didn't realize it was her artwork and I reminded Mm. her of that and I got an interesting reaction because I think and I'm I'm assuming here I think she got uncomfortable because she didn't remember that she had made that artwork oh which in hindsight I'm like I probably should have included a note or something to be like hey I decided to recreate your artwork as this and that way there wouldn't have been that embarrassment at having forgotten and obviously you know I have memory problems so that's why I'm thinking that that is because I have embarrassment when I forget things so I think that's what that was and I think that that's one of those things that's when I realized like okay if I do this in the future because I think I will still make some embroidery pieces out of her artwork to share with other family I will probably make sure that they're comfortable with that first before I gift that to them sure sure so I know that you had talked about wanting to go over a little bit about displays and crafts at funerals and grave sites specifically. Did you want to go into that? Yeah, I do actually. So my family is really big on, they don't just do funerals, they'll also do like memorial ceremonies and we'll just kind of go out to lunch and we usually do, my cats are fighting, sorry. <laughs> so my family will usually do a, uh, a wake and a funeral and with some family members we'll also do like um, either a memorial ceremony or like go out to dinner depends on the family member we've also done it where we skipped the funeral in the wake and just done a memorial especially during covid times i know a couple of the funerals that did happen during that time weren't actually anything official it was like a memorial thing and it was done over zoom um we had some distant family that did something similar to that or they've just kicked the can down the road so we've always done photo boards 
gathered photos everyone kind of gets involved it's something that you get to sift through photos and talk to each other and I think that's really important for that grieving process is to remember them and to go through things and that's the whole point of it is to remember the person so you go through and you pick the photos that you feel best represent that person's life and you get to revisit their life instead of thinking about your loss and thinking about what you don't have anymore you get to kind of revisit the happy times I think and that I think for my family is pretty important um the other thing to think about is like you know you can do things at grave sites um and my family also has historically done that you know we'll bring flowers and things it's important to know the regulations for the you know the the place cemetery yeah um thank you I couldn't remember the word cemetery (laughs) which just shows you the kind of memory issues I have (laughs) um but outdoor displays, it's important that they, you know, meet whatever requirements are, but also thinking about longevity. How long is it going to be out there? Uh, sustainability, if it does blow away, is it going to damage the environment? Do you have something to weight it down? Do you have something to attach it? Are you allowed to attach things? Yeah. Um, yeah, because I've seen a lot of Facebook posts of people who are frustrated by the rules in the cemetery, especially when it comes to like silk flowers mm-hmm. um, or even live flowers and how long they can be there. And it's like, oh, I just placed these flowers Saturday, but they cleaned them off Sunday. You know? Yeah. And that can definitely, I mean, it's emotionally charged. It's a place that you're going to visit your loved one. So I can absolutely understand it. So it's really important to have the conversation with them and to come at it. Honestly, it's hard, but coming at those conversations calmly and with respect because they're not trying to hurt you. People that you know, work at and manage cemeteries, their goal is absolutely not to cause harm to you, but they are thinking about considerations like making sure the space looks nice for other families who are coming through and making sure that they're not damaging the environment or upsetting yep. any city or- ordinances that exist or fire codes. Yeah, and the other thing too regarding uh, cemeteries and the grief process, I strongly encourage people to consider volunteering at cemeteries and doing grave cleaning, even of people that aren't connected to you personally. I think that's very healing in its own way. Uh, Taking care of the dead and taking care of those resting spaces have a bit of that spiritual healing component. When we're healing others, we're healing ourselves. Um, And yes, I, the atheist saying this is kind of a weird statement, Um, but I think it it does provide a bit of that connection that is hard to achieve in other ways. And right now there's actually that kind of cool movement on TikTok where there's a number of people doing like power cleaning of graves and things, and they have some great resources for how you can get started on that yourself, Um, how to approach a cemetery, you know, what the rules are. And a lot of those people are really great resources and they have videos out there. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, there's people out there doing that who are doing a lot of um, emotional labor, honestly, in, in getting you those resources. So I would absolutely reach out to them, see what they have for videos and see what information exists for you to get help. Yeah, and just make sure when you go into that that you're being knowledgeable and doing the research first so that you're not damaging the gravestones with these super powerful power washers which are very satisfying to watch (laughs) and work (laughs) yeah there's a lot of also like some of those chemicals um a lot of places are using like these eco-friendly mixes and that's why i say go to those people that are already doing it and who have the resources out because they will have like how do i talk to the cemetery what materials are safe how do i prevent damage how do i fix damage if i've accidentally inadvertently damaged something because frankly it does happen like they've knocked over stones and things so 
um there's there's guides out there for how to handle those situations for sure um the other thing that i wanted to kind of talk about is like memory books and i'm looking at heather and scrapbooks and mini books are a great way (laughs) they're not real (laughs) they're not real um no but like they can be a good way is like even just having a photo album so many people have fallen out of the habit of having printed photos I try to occasionally just go through my phone and do a Snapfish order, honestly, because they're so, so cheap. It doesn't cost that much to have printed photos. If anything ever happens to your phone, you can have the physical copies. That's my cat playing with a toy. I'm so sorry, guys. (laughs) It's okay. Grief's not serious. That's not real. (laughs) (laughs) My cats don't think so. (laughs) But, like, you know, going through and printing those photos, and, again, that process of picking things and finding things from that person's life can be really, really cathartic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also the importance of having physical photos from just like a working with children standpoint and helping children through the grief process, having photos gives them something tangible to connect to um, in a way that a lot of just like conversations about the person who passed may not. So the next thing now that we're talking about photos, actually, I'm going to give the trigger warning here because we are going to talk about infant death. If that is a sensitive issue for you, if you've lost a child, if that's just something you can't hear about, skip over this part. Maybe, you know, go. We'll, go. Put, we'll put in the show notes uh, the section to specifically skip to once okay. we have the minute markers. I'll go ahead awesome. and track that. Yeah, and go ahead, go, go eat a snack, forward over to that spot, take a break, you know. But I just want to talk about, you know, it used to be much more common to take pictures of the deceased, especially because photography was so expensive uh, it may be the only picture that you ever got of your loved one was after they were deceased. So they would, you know, dress and clean the body, pose them sometimes. Sometimes the photo would be laying, particularly because child and infant mortality rates were obscene from the number of childhood illnesses. Um, usually, you know, that would, again, be the only photo that you would ever have of your child. And it was very, very important to those families. I think our modern day society, a lot of people see those as either creepy or fascinating. Whereas, I mean, you're talking about a grieving parent that was like their coping mechanism. And I think it's important to have a level of respect about that. Um, When people call it creepy, I actually, I have a hard time with that. um, Personally, I find it a little offensive because that's a grieving family. Like they are all gone now, probably, obviously, if the picture's old enough. There are actually some examples of photography that are pretty recent and those are those people are still there and they could even be reading your comments and they could be from one of the subcultures in America where they still are doing the home funeral and they're still taking the photos and things like that. So, um, you know, you could be talking badly about their great aunt who passed away in childhood. And it just makes me uncomfortable that people make a judgment about it without thinking about, OK, but there was emotion behind taking that photo. That's me being a little judgy. Sorry. No, but but I think it goes back to that piece of we are so disconnected from death and grief as a Western culture. And we essentially make fun of or belittle those who do grief and who do respect and honor death in those more public forums. Because even I, you know, my husband is Samoan and whenever there's death in his family, his family, especially those living in Samoa, are very um, 
outward about their grief. You, you see pictures of them kissing and hugging the body. You see pictures of them after the body's been cleaned and dressed and prepared. And they sit with the body for a while. It's not like a, you know, go to the morgue and see you at the funeral. It is a process. And I do think it's interesting to see other people's reactions to that if they're not from that culture, from that background. But also... I encourage people to look at those photos of infants and children who have passed and see that as a big call to be preventive wherever possible. Get your kids vaccinated. Meet those preventative health appointments, you know, those child welfare, well, child checks, whatever they're called, as I have two children. Um, (laughs) But take them to those appointments. Meet their medical needs. We are in a, you know, very... scientifically equipped. I can talk today. We are in a very scientifically equipped society that is able to prevent a lot of the death that we saw in the Victorian era where the numbers were insane. Yep. And you would see, you know, I'm originally from New England and you go through any cemetery in New England because, you know, the the cemeteries there, some of them have stones dating back to the 1600s. Um, It's wild. And you'll look, and it will be an entire row of mom, dad, baby, 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 baby. Like, they have, like, 12 babies who died under the age of, like, one. And that's not uncommon. I wish that it had been because I'm just thinking about, like, just that mother by baby number 12. Like, how wrecked was she? Because they didn't have access to medical care that we have access to today. And then you see, like, you know, the date of the last baby and the mother will match sometimes. And you're like, well, okay. And there's actually a poet. um, I lived in Greenfield, Mass. And Poet Seat Tower is named after a poet. And I should know his name. And we can get that in the show notes. Um, But I was reading about him and, like, how his wife died in childbirth and how it just wrecked him. And I think that that spot actually was something to do with his wife. Um, But it was a really, really sad story. And had they had access to proper medical care, that wouldn't have happened. Um, And that's just super, super common. I think every cemetery I used to, you know, in my younger days, hang out in cemeteries. What? You know (laughs) And, um, you know, I just remember feeling very drawn to those families to just spend time with them and sit in remembrance of them because it's just really sad. Um... And especially, again, thinking, like, in many of those cases, they probably had that thing where they had pictures of their babies, and I'm sure they're sitting in a thrift stop shop somewhere in Massachusetts, like, or in someone's attic, um, which was also another thing I found so many of those pictures just in antique shops and thrift stores, which is wild to me that someone's death photos just ended up on a shelf somewhere for 99 cents. I know, it's, it's <laughs> such a trip, and even, like, the other crafts, like, I think of all the quilts and afghans that you know have passed through somebody's hands who is probably no longer here. And to think about their family just, like, discarding that to the thrift store. Yeah. And sometimes it's an accident, you know, like, and people like to get those things back. But sometimes it's just there's no one left. Like, that's it. Yeah. That's, that's, it's like their legacy and there's no one to take it, which is wild. The other thing, and again, trigger warning, like, if you're still here, the modern day sort of movement towards having uh, death and funeral photography and as a healing as a part of the healing process there's an organization that I have a friend who 
uh, is a photographer for. Uh, now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. I believe it's a volunteer basis organization. Uh, and they kind of give a call out to a photographer when um, there's an infant death. And it's, you know, usually in the hospital setting. And they will get final photos. Um, some hospitals actually just do that in-house. They'll get photos. They'll make like a little memory box and things like that. And that's a part of the process. And they kind of give the parents the option because some people don't want it, which is perfectly valid. You don't have to do anything like that, you know. And I like that they have the option, though. You know, they'll kind of have like the hat that your baby wore. Um, sorry, it's like hard to talk about. I've had miscarriages, so it's like a tough topic for me. So if you're having a tough time over there, it's not just you. Um, but they'll have like babies, the hat that they wore, you know, when they got to cuddle their baby, you know, a lot more hospitals are doing more, um, positive sort of bonding with where you get to hold your baby and you get to spend time with your baby, um, before you kind of send them away. They'll get little fingerprints and footprints and they'll kind of include like just little, little memorial things from your hospital stay. So you aren't just going home empty handed. Um, that was harder to talk about than I thought. I'm okay. Oh. Um, but lay, now I lay me down to sleep is really wonderful. Many of the people that photograph for them have actually been through infant loss themselves. Uh, and I would encourage you to please check them out. If you feel so moved, donate to them. Um, they're a really great organization. And I think it is the modern day equivalent of the death photography for, for, for babies. Um, and I think it's, it's a good sign that we are moving in a good direction in terms of looking at creative ways of embracing our grief. I think that for many of those parents, having that normalizing experience of getting photos of their baby can be very healing and helpful. I know for me when I had miscarriages and nurses would just, you know, they knew that I was having a loss, but they still talked about my pregnancy it was very normalizing and I'd imagine it's a similar thing where it can be very normalizing and make that you know because unfortunately those women are not having the expected normal experience and then they get to have that one little piece of like having a photographer come in and talk about their baby honor their baby pose their baby you know get those final photos and having those pictures of their baby is um I think really beautiful yeah absolutely um, and I do want to shout out Bones and Bobbins podcast uh, also covers some of this with the death photography, especially with uh, the Victorian era. And they go a little bit in depth on those as well as the Victorian hair crafts, which is another way that in the Victorian era they processed through grief. So, yeah. So, um just going to take note that we're transitioning out of the uh, trigger warning topic and we are now moving on to talk about cremains and ways that cremains are used. This is more my field because I work with jewelry. I've done a lot of wire wrap and I have worked with um, both glass and resin artists um, with cremains. So I have specific people that I recommend people out to at this point. Uh, if they're interested in getting a piece by me that has cremains in it. So you can work with any number of things. Um, I've even seen cremains mixed in with like acrylic paints and used to paint. Um, you can put it in resin. You can put your loved one in glass and make uh, paperweights or like a little thing that you can wrap, like a little charm. Uh, there's all different options. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, I would definitely reach out to jewelry artists who work with that. I'm 
honestly one of them not that you would ever have to go with me but if you're looking for even just to talk about options I'm always open to talking about that for sure um but the paperweights thing there's a number of companies that actually do some really really cool ones where they're specifically geared towards making them with cremains and they have some really neat ways of working with the glass and a lot of independent glass artists are more than happy to work with cremains uh definitely like check in with them make sure it's something they're comfortable with because there's people that aren't comfortable with it but from what i've actually seen the majority of glass artists that i know are just are super receptive to it and many of them are even honored and excited to get the chance to be a part of that process for and with you uh, and then the other thing that we were going to talk about was, like, so I've actually seen, like, you can, like, get a biodegradable homemade urn, and you can even get them where it's, like, paper mache, basically. And oh. you know, like, the paper mache where you can make, like, a business card that has, like, seeds in it? Yes. You can do that with your loved one's cremains, and you can have, like, a flower garden that you start with their cremains and I think that's just so amazing because your loved one becomes a part of nature again in a very deliberate sort of ways um there's all kinds of ways to do that obviously but that way it's like you have you also end up kind of with a green space where you get to be with them and I just want to take a moment to put this plug out there in case I don't get around to writing a will anytime soon before my inevitable death happens. I want to be buried in a mushroom spore-filled urn. So burn me up and plant me out. Because I, I don't think my husband's going to remember that, just to be honest. I mean, I'm pretty extra and will never be able to afford what I want, but I'd love to be, like, shot into space or turned into a diamond, like, one of those, because I'm that, <laughs> I'm that level of extra, but it's not going to happen. Yes, so, I am a diamond bitch. <laughs> so I'll probably just get dumped off the side of a boat or something, I don't know. <laughs> a Viking funeral. <laughs> but I'm not a Viking, I'm a princess. <laughs> I love how delightfully irreverent we are sometimes. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. When we're talking about our own death, we can be as disrespectful as yeah, we are. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Where I'm just like, yeah, just throw me over the side of the boat if we can't make a diamond out of me. It's fine. All or nothing. <laughs> there is no in between. <laughs> the next thing that I wanted to touch on, because I've lost a number of pets, I actually encountered some crafts that I wasn't aware of while researching this topic. Like, people using their pet's collars to make jewelry, which is super cool. Like, obviously, that's, like, uh, all of my interests in one. Uh, I had never seen that. And I have some of my pet's collars, so now I'm, like, going to go into storage and, like, try to find them. And, like, um, my heart cat died when I was 10. And I have her purple oh. collar. Yeah. That was really, really crappy. My, I only had my my heart animal for like four years, and everyone knows what it's like when you have your animal, and she was she was my animal, yeah, um, in a way that no other animal has ever been. Uh, and she had this little purple collar, and I still have it. Um, so I, I, I'm thinking I'm going to do something. I had it in a shadow box at one point, and I think it's going to end up becoming um, some sort of hopefully uh, durable piece of jewelry. Um, the other thing is using their paw prints to make things so like you getting imprints and depending on the size of the paw print you can actually make jewelry with that you can make coasters um things that can go on the wall and a lot of veterinary offices now it's just a matter of course that they get paw prints for you which is really yep. really nice um they yeah. they don't even wait for you to ask which i like 
I feel like when you're in grief, it is hard to ask for things or to even think of the question. And now, especially as a chronically ill person, there's a lot of times where I don't really know what I need to ask for. And I think when you're in grief, that's a similar emotional response uh, where you don't really know to ask for the thing. And then after the fact, you're like, I wish I'd asked for this. And I think that a lot more, you know, uh, professionals who see death are able to say, here's the need, I'm going to anticipate it. If they don't want it, we can get rid of it. But if they do want it, then they have it. Instead of taking that option away from people, they, they're kind of opening that door themselves to say, We're, let's get the paw prints, you know, and just kind of doing it and then saying, okay, now would you like these? We, we did take these for you. Um, and I like that a lot better than forcing people who are grieving to ask for things. Yeah. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, I recently lost my Bodie, my dog. Um, It was a rough passing, uh, but thankfully I was able to be with her through it. And one of the things we're actually talking about doing, we have um, a harness that she wore and then her brush, and both are just filled with her fur. And so I'm actually going to be felting her fur and then turning the... Uh, felt sheets that I make out of it into flowers and somebody making felt flowers and then doing um, a shadow box with that and then her collar um, and then a couple other pieces so yeah this is kind of like a weirdly aptly timed episode oh I love that idea I didn't even think about felting which is interesting because we're staring at a bag of my cat's hair right now that we're (laughs) using for something (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, we um, we had talked about in her eventual death, because obviously she was an older dog, um, but we had talked about ways that I would be able to process through her passing, because we, we knew it was going to be hard. So. I'm sorry. It's okay. I've had a lot of support, and my work has been very patient and understanding. Because I'll, I'll be honest, like, her passing has hit me harder than any human's passing has. So. And that kind of ties in with what we were talking about in the beginning, you know, where, like, um, there is this idea that people have of it's just an animal. And I can tell you, it's, for me, it's never been just an yep. animal. It's been worse than any human death that I've ever experienced. And I've had friends that have died very, very young and very unexpectedly and very violently. And the animal deaths, I don't know, it just, it hits harder it for me personally. Well, and I, I think it's because they're with you in your most vulnerable moments. And, like, Bodie was with me through every major life transition since I was a young adult, from my bachelor's degree to my master's to moving to Alaska to being in a, you know, domestic violence-riddled relationship to having kids and so and getting married to the love of my life. Hey, honey. Um, who's been amazing through this whole process. So, yeah, it's, it's, it hits different. Yeah, it's, I think that recently, you know, I mean, I'm looking through the lens, my, my lens of the world has changed very rapidly, very recently, um, for reasons that we'll eventually get into. Um, but having that connection with my pets has changed a lot of things for me, and it makes me realize how much, like, the people in my life can be letting me down, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> like, um, my pets don't care how sick I feel. My pets don't care how tired I am. My pets don't care 
about anything other than like can I snuggle with you and you know I mean my, my dog I love her but she cares about me as a food receptacle um but my you know my cats are very emotionally tied in with me and um it's just really nice to have that connection and I think that's why I don't know like it's just it's different than people people are flawed animals don't have those flaws and animals don't care about your flaws at all right so it's fine it's both <laughs> emotionally raw we're still I don't know how to explain this but like it's we're still processing yeah like, let's be honest part of this episode is processing it's been a heck of a week it's an interesting episode for the end of a heck of a week because we planned this like a month or two ago like this wasn't yeah. even like oh you know what makes sense to do right now yeah and then we had the discussion of like do we even want to do this right now um and we both decided to proceed um and we're glad I, I'm glad that we did. I think yeah. it's I think it's important for our processing, but we're just kind of dragging you along with us on that journey. And yeah, and we didn't decide to like push through our grief to do this. It was very much a like, no, this is part of having that healthy relationship That's with fair. that grief of like, I'm gonna take ownership that I am grieving right now and I am struggling. I can absolutely understand that. Um you know, well, I'll get into it a little bit. You know what? We're going to get into this a little bit, if that's okay with everyone. <laughs> Buckle up, buttercups. <laughs> um, I've been dealing with a rare disease diagnosis, potentially, um, and dealing with all of the self-advocacy that comes along with that and all of the fighting to get basic medical care for what is a strange medical problem. And there's been days where I've wanted to give up, and the reason why I have not is like, well, someone's got to feed my damn dog. <laughs> 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 like, that's what it comes down to. Is I'm like, well... I've got the cats and the dog and someone's got to be here for them. So that's been my motivation is like when I get really bad. So I, I get it because I've also hit that wall of like, why do I even exist again? Because no one cares if I live or die. Clearly, I have to fight for my right to exist as a human right now and for people to care that I'm sick. So I, I get that. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there of like, Yes, we are both struggling with shit right now, Uh, but we decided to move forward with this episode because we do think some vulnerability is important to a, you know, walk the walk and not just talk the talk, but be also model how those conversations can happen and to kind of set that stage for our listeners of like, we are a safe space to grieve with, you know, you can be a part of our Gorgon community and grieve. And yes, I, as a social worker, will absolutely make sure you're accessing appropriate mental health resources in your community uh, because I am not your mental health professional. But we want to also create that safe space to grieve and to experience and express those feelings safely and know that you will not be judged for whatever time it takes or whatever form it takes. Yeah, and I've always been, I mean, I've had multiple miscarriages, and I've always been a huge advocate that, like, we grow by taking things out of the shadows. We grow by taking things out of hushed conversations and back rooms, and if we bring these things to the surface and we make it okay for people to talk about, we can only move forward with that and make things easier for people, and I want... I want people to feel safe to talk about their grief. I want people to feel safe to talk about, you know, the things that hurt them the most because those things don't belong in back rooms unless you want them to, you know, but like Mm -hmm. you don't need to feel sequestered. If you want to talk about that, I think we need to make that socially acceptable to bring these conversations to the light when we want to and when we feel safe to do so. Yeah. Feelings. 
Mm. <laughs> so thank <laughs> okay. we both deal with grief with a lot of humor and a lot of dark humor so that's kind of what you're seeing here we're not actually being irreverent <laughs> yep <laughs> so thank you for being on the journey with us and thank you for listening to this episode thank you for listening to the not so crafty gorgons we really appreciate your support and we couldn't do any of this without you our listeners cover art is by marina soul art Music is by Naveed, who is a min-me on Fiverr. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or rating on whatever platform that you prefer. And for exclusive content with the Gorgons, including tutorials, swag, and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash notsocraftygorgons. For episode previews and other updates, follow us on Instagram at not underscore so underscore crafty underscore gorgons.